I'm not sure there is anything which is more ever-present in our daily lives than the telephone. And yet there is probably nothing we take for granted more. And one way to especially appreciate that device which you hold in your hand and with which you talk so easily and effortlessly to uh, someone down the block or someone in another state or someone across the world is to read a book called The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret. It isn't so much that this is a book that talks really at all about the modern telephone or cell phone technology or anything like that, but it takes us back to the dawn of the creation of this technology. And it really helps us understand, first of all, the painstaking steps that are involved in achieving this kind of a technological breakthrough. And in the case of the telephone, sometimes the intrigue and uh, and even outright dishonesty that can be involved in such undertakings, especially when someone is feeling tremendous pressure to uh, to achieve that breakthrough one way or another and to secure as much credit for themselves as they can. But maybe that already gives away too much of the story which we're about to talk about over the next few minutes. The book in hand, The Telephone Gambit, is by Seth Schulman, who has uh, covered issues related to uh, technology, science, and so on. He has written books including Unlocking the Sky and Owning the Future. And in this most recent book, he painstakingly explores the question of who really invented the telephone. And uh, it is one of the most interesting books uh, I have ever read, so I am exceptionally excited to talk with Seth Schulman about his book published by W.W. W. Norton & Company. Seth Schulman, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, Greg, thank you, and thank you for that kind introduction. Wow, one of the most exciting books you've ever read, or whatever you said, that's uh, wonderful, and, wonderful to hear. I'm so glad. And I have read a lot of books <laughs> in my day, so you probably don't even understand what a compliment that is, but I, I, I mean it very, very sincerely. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear it. Thank you. Um, just a preliminary question about the telephone, and since you are such an adept science writer, I, I, I don't think you'll, you'll mind maybe us uh, just exploring this for a second. It seems to me that when we think about the phone, and for so many people now, the telephone means a cell phone, it makes me wonder just how distant we are from what was the standard telephone, and especially back in Alexander Graham Bell's day. I mean, are we talking about the difference between a Model T Ford and a, and a Corvette, or are we talking about the difference between an abacus and a calculator? Uh, I mean, how much, how much does this even well, deserve to be called a telephone? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a really great question. The, uh, it's somewhere in between, I think. Um, uh, this, the story that I tell revolves around really a, one of the central breakthroughs, which was this question of how to translate the sound waves from your voice uh, into an electrical current. This is what they couldn't quite figure out how to do, and Alexander Granville was working on it. He couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Um, and uh, so, of course, the very early way of accomplishing that is somewhat unrecognizable from the way we do it today. But it opened the door and uh, was a you know direct ancestor of of what we've got going now. Cell phones, of course, now things are all digital. It's a little bit different. But up until very recently, uh, the the type of invention that that's at the heart of this this detective story of my book um, 
is uh, is really you know a direct ancestor of of the telephone that that we all grew up with. Hmm. And lucky for you, uh, in the pursuit of this book, you say that the story of the telephone's invention is just is not just well known; it is impeccably documented. And so, uh, for someone wanting to explore this further, uh, there there was a whole lot for you to draw upon. Explain to our listeners the project which actually got you started and the two inventors that uh, you were wanting to take a close look at. Well, uh, you know, I, I write a lot about contemporary, uh, modern-day invention, and uh, I'm very interested in it. And I had the opportunity to, uh, to go and do a fellowship year at MIT, um, and I had proposed to them to, to look at two of my favorite iconic inventors, uh, Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison. Most people don't know it, but these these two were contemporaries, born about two weeks apart, and uh, and they were rivals. And I thought um, they've had a lot written about them, but I thought it'd be really interesting to to look at at their their rivalry and uh, and their relationship uh, because they were such different men and they uh, had such different approaches to inventing. And they both lived at this incredible time, this golden age of invention, and contributed so much and changed the world so much. So this is what I set out to do. And of the two, I had a real affinity for Bell. He's, uh, you know, he, he uh, has just, they're, they're both amazing. But, uh, but uh, Edison was kind of a, a grouchy guy, a cantankerous guy. And, uh, and Bell was always described as being charming and uh, kind of professorial and, <laughs> you, say, you say at one point, Bell wins points for panache. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, right. He does, and uh, that counts for something. And so for whatever reason, I decided to start my research with him. Hmm. And one of the first things I did is I went to his laboratory notebook, um, which is uh, now available through the Library of Congress uh, up on the web. Uh, anybody can look at it, and the great thing about it is it's uh, available in a high-resolution digital format. So you can actually look at it uh, in his own handwriting, see the pages of the notebook. And this is what I was doing. And I started about a year prior to that famous day when he calls to Watson in the next room. And uh, it's, a, it's a very accessible thing. You can, his handwriting's beautiful. He writes everything down. He's a very clear thinker. And he was working away. He had made some good strides on the receiver end of the telephone, um, the part that you listen into, which was very similar to the telegraph of its day, but he couldn't figure out how to get those sound waves from your voice into an electrical current, the so-called transmitter part of the telephone. And he was working on that and trying all sorts of different things. And what I noticed is right before that fateful time when he has his success, he dramatically changes his research. And it piqued my interest. And when I first started looking into it, uh, I quickly found that Bell had drawn a sketch in his own notebook that was virtually identical to a patent filing that was made by his main rival, a guy named Elisha Gray. Uh, and Elisha Gray had filed that confidential filing at the patent office three weeks earlier. Um, and when I saw that, I, you know, I thought, first thing I thought is I must be wrong. Um, how could this be? I mean, how could it? For, how could he have gotten access? How could no one else have ever noticed this? Uh, it just—I just didn't quite know what to make of it, and uh, it sent me on what would be the next year. Kind of took over my life of really trying to to get to the bottom of the story of that mystery. And how in the world did Bell do 
what he what he did. We should mention, by the way, not to jump ahead into the story, but in your book, you show us very clear facsimiles of Alexander Graham Bell's notebook, including that sketch, and then the diagram from the third page of Elisha Gray's caveat to the U.S. Patent Office, and then in a third image, you draw them together side by side, and we see those two images, and indeed, they're remarkably similar, and uh, obviously, (laughs) something was rotten in Denmark. Uh, for that right. identical drawing to appear in two different places, it should not have been possible. Right. Well, you know, but but still, even though it was in front of my eyes that way, my still my initial thought is, I mean, we've all heard the story, you know, of, of Bell inventing the telephone, and I really, um, you know, one of the, the, the themes of this book is about uh, how history is remembered and, and the power of historical myths. And, uh, you know, just uh, anyway, this is one of the, the stranger things that has ever happened to me, literally, to have that experience, because one of the, the, the first things, I mean, I've had people say to me, oh, you know, because I do a lot of investigative reporting, and people um, acted like, well, you must have felt like you really had found some sort of scoop. But quite honestly, the first thing that I felt was that, that I must have it backwards. I must be mistaken. Um, it's the type of thing you could look at and uh and just, you know, who, who was I to, to go up against all of this history? Every kid's book, every uh, electrical textbook uh, tells this, this story of Bell's invention of the telephone. So, so it felt like an awful lot to go, go up against, and really um, uh, I felt like I, I must be wrong. And that's, that's one of the things that sort of motivated me to try and look into it more. And every time I, I looked in, the the mystery kind of deepened, and, hmm. uh, and it made, made it an amazing experience to, to go through. That's why it's an amazing book. We're speaking to uh, Seth Schulman. We're talking about his book, The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret. For, for just a moment, I want to retreat back uh, sort of a half step. You say, as, uh, this is early in the book, as a journalist who specializes in science and technology, I have long been interested in invention, how it occurs, and how it is remembered. I love the way you put that, and uh, we're right down the road from Racine, Wisconsin, which is sometimes called the city of invention, and uh, uh, even though uh, nothing came out of Racine quite as dramatic as the telephone, there are uh, a few things that were uh, were actually created uh, in or around uh, Racine, and so I think for just a moment it would be interesting uh, to have you just talk for a second about this abiding interest which you have had in this, and... Uh, the, the, the kind of places uh, it has taken you over the years as a writer. Well, sure, thank you. Um, uh, I've just always, you know, people get interested in different things. I've always been interested in, in uh, invention uh, and, uh, you know, worked a lot as a journalist. And I guess I've always felt that uh, the amazing thing about inventions is that they, they make such dramatic changes in the way we live. Uh, and yet, they don't always make the headlines, you know, that, uh, that in some ways, I mean, just to give you the most obvious example, the Internet, something that's come up in, in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, uh, changed the way people communicate, the way they do business, just made such a dramatic change in so many ways. Um, these always kind of felt like some of the most underreported stories. So it's been really fun in my own lifetime, a time of, of a lot of technological change, to, uh, to get to... Uh, to cover some of those stories and go out there and see. So I, you know, just to give you a little example, I did a recent story on a fantastic company um, in the Boston area 
that um, has developed a, uh, it's called Myomo, uh, for my own motion. And what it is is it's a brace that people can wear after having a stroke, and uh, it can sense electrical signals from your brain that come on your skin when you want to move that paralyzed arm because people after strokes are often paralyzed in half of their body. And it helps you, uh, uh, it can sense when your brain's sending the single that, signal that you want to move, and it gives you an assist. And what's most amazing about this particular invention, this technology, is that after wearing this brace for a while, a lot of people, the brain rewires, and they can regain their own motion. So it's a fabulous <laughs> new, new invention. Um, I love that kind of thing. I, I love when people are solving problems, and especially when they're doing things that, uh, you know, that can help so many people like that. Well, and as you uh, have touched on earlier, we also love, <laughs> we as a, a collective public, love it when there is some wonderful story we can attach to uh, an and, and invention, you know, be it you know, the apple hitting Isaac Newton in the head or uh, the guy selling ice cream at the uh, World's Fair who can't keep his dishes washed fast enough, so someone next door invents the ice cream cone. I mean, we, yeah, we yeah. love it when the, when the world of technology can have that sort of human face and be anecdotally accessible to us. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, uh, I find that it often is. There's often a great story, and the, and the motivation of the people is often very interesting, too. So it's a, it's a very rich area. And, you know, that being said... Um, when you, if you have that, like me, of being interested in invention, uh, this period uh, in which Alexander Graham Bell lived and Thomas Edison lived, it's it's it is just a, a fabulous time. Uh, uh, quite a while ago, and yet still has a, a feel of relevance and modernity to it because uh, this really was a golden age when people were so many of the things that shape our world were created in this relatively brief period that stretched from in the, in the late 1800s into the beginning of the 1900s. Oh, it's incredible. The car and the airplane and the telephone. Think about that. I mean, the, one of the really fun things in this story, of course, is that they're driving around in horse and carriage. This is still the, the Victorian era, and yet people felt that the world was changing so fast, and, and it was. Mm. And, uh, uh, and so uh, it's a great, great backdrop for this, this tale. Your story is is not only one of trying to you know plumb into history, scientific history, but uh, at at several different points, it's also in effect uh, a study of historiography, the the study of the study of history, or what is history, or how do we construct history, and you're given actually good advice at several different points during your your odyssey, uh, including. At one point, uh, advice from a historian who gave you an interesting warning, which I think is 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 worth talking about for just a, a moment or two, that you not uh, fall into the pitfall of Whiggism uh, as you studied right. this. Tell our listeners just a, a thing, a little bit about that. Well, let me just first start by saying, you know, that this this I, I explained this book was born. I, I got to do this fellowship year where I was working with a lot of eminent historians, and uh, it was a real privilege for me. Uh, you know, uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, um, and I had never realized the extent to which historians are often really like detectives. I mean, I've kind of written a detective story of my own experience. Um, 
but I gained a lot of admiration for the for my colleagues there, uh, the kind of work they do to sort through evidence and try and figure out what really happened and whatever they, they might be researching. And um, and so I did. One of the great things was I was kind of I'm the bumbling uh, you know bumbling uh, detective here, the novice, uh, but I had a lot of people to go to. And this idea of Whigism, uh, which comes from uh, from uh, when people talked about the Tories and the Whigs and uh, um, this idea of writing a kind of a, a partisan view of history, um, it, it's come to mean looking at history backwards, essentially, assuming something that's current in the present day when you're writing about history that wasn't applicable in the past. And, uh, and this was something that, uh, that comes up in, in my story when I'm trying to analyze uh, some of, of the findings that I'm... I'm doing, and I was. I was warned about that, and it interested me to think about how these historians uh, operate. One of the things that you have to do is try to to not go in with those preconceptions of your own day, but really put yourself back into uh, the way people were thinking about a problem at the time. To the extent that you can do that, you often have a very different view of what's going on. Hmm. I suppose, you know, maybe a, this is a pretty simplistic example, I should think, but for instance, nowadays, Everybody's connected to everybody and everything, and so in a sense, it, it's all but impossible to be truly isolated and working on something, whereas once upon a time, it was entirely possible to be toiling away uh, in complete isolation and completely oblivious to the breakthroughs that were occurring uh, down the block or, or in another state, let alone in another country. And on the other hand, if you were part of certain ad- academic circles, even 150 years ago, there might be certain things which you might in fact know about. But being careful about those kind of contextual details can make all the difference in the world in whether or not you understand a given moment of history. That's that's right. I mean, I think you got it. That's that's not a simple example at all. That's an excellent example. The uh, um, you know the really pertinent one with the telephone is uh, is to remember that there wasn't a telephone yet. People didn't even really conceive of the idea of a telephone, and it's one thing that makes Alexander Graham Bell kind of stand out because he was something of a visionary in the way that he understood the way things were going. But at the time, people weren't trying to invent a telephone they were actually all concertedly looking at a way to try and send multiple messages over the telegraph wire at a time. Uh, this, was the, this was the invention that was going to make people a lot of money, and this is what Bell and Elisha Gray, his rival, and Thomas Edison were all working on this um, because the telegraph was very popular. People were sending telegrams all the time, and they were stringing up more and more wires and they had what we'd call today essentially a bandwidth problem. Uh, you had too many telegrams. It was a traffic jam on the wires. Well, and, and you have a photograph in your book that is in, uh, remarkable. I can't remember. It's some city. I can't remember where it is. But yeah. we, we see this tangle of telegraph wires. You can hardly see the sky. And, uh, and this was an increasing problem. I mean, and something had to happen or right. <laughs> the whole thing was going to crash. Right, right. And, uh, but, you know, the key thing in terms of this idea of Whiggism, the key thing to, to help the historian guide through this, this uh, particular aspect of the story is to remember that, uh, uh, you know, what people were after, and this is what they were after. They were trying to solve that problem. And 
conceptually, one of the hurdles for people is that when you sent a telegram, you'd go to the telegraph office, and then the operator would tap it out in Morse code, and you'd have instantaneous communication. To You could even at this time do it overseas. So, um, so that was an amazing change for, for these people, but you'd go to an office. So the idea of having people talk to each other, uh, one of the conceptual stumbling blocks is people would say, you know, well, why in the world would we want our telegraph operators to talk to one another? And it was Bell was one of the few of, of his period who made that, that next step, that next conceptual step to realizing that this could be something that everyone would have in their homes and that they'd be able to talk directly with one another. But it wasn't obvious to everyone at the time. Hmm. We're speaking with Seth Shulman about his book, The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret. I, I realize there's one other uh, question I need to ask that's a, more of a kind of a background nature. You've touched on the fact that you uh, especially enjoyed in this experience of kind of working side by side with some really gifted uh, historians and scholars and so on uh, at this Dibner uh, Institute on the MIT campus. One thing I, I, I must confess I don't fully understand you is, is how you characterize yourself as something of an outsider there. And you are actually told by someone working there. I don't see the name now. Smith is the last name. Right. Um, yeah. But you're, you're told by him there are some people who actually don't think you should be there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I understand in, in what way you were an, an outsider and especially in what way some people might have even kind of resented your presence there. Well... That that comes. That's just sort of a, a sidelight to the story, but it did sure. it did make a difference in the um, in the way this whole thing unfolded in my own life. And the and the thing there is that uh, this is a rarefied academic uh, fellowship, usually given to people who've accomplished a lot in the field of history. And in this particular year, this was the 2004-2005 academic year. They had decided to invite a non-historian to come. I think one of the ideas behind it was to try and just shake things up a little bit, to have uh, someone who's interested in history and who's a writer to come as kind of a writer in residence and to join the group and to participate in the, the academic seminars and everything else. And it was the first time they tried it, so I was the guinea pig. And that was why there was some feeling of, well, you know, what's someone like that going to really contribute to, to the work that we're doing here? And, uh, um, you know, for the most part, I was absolutely uh, welcome, but there was, a, you know, but I was a different person uh, than they'd ever had before because I'm not, not a trained historian. Uh, I'm a, a working journalist. And, mm. and while there's, there's a lot of similarities, um, uh, there also are a lot of differences in the, in the way uh, we approach things. And so at a lot of the, we'd have, we'd have regular seminars where people would talk about very, you know, arcane historical topics of one kind or another, and I was usually the guy raising my hand and, and asking for more explanation, you know, how, how, uh, what is, what's the relevance of that, or how can you connect it to things that I could understand? So it put me in a, it was very interesting. It was a, a, a fascinating experience. Hmm. I think another really interesting, insightful moment is when you talk about how for many people who study these sorts of things, it's often the study of a lot of paperwork and the study of concepts, uh, and, and in a sense, on, 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 a, on a relatively abstract 
or theoretical sort of level, or, or it might at least start to feel that way, versus the, the, the suggestion which you were given by someone else in the field at one point about, don't forget about the devices. Don't forget to, uh, to take the opportunity, if you possibly can, to, to look at some of the actual stuff the de- the devices, the equipment, the inventions themselves, and that in th- those those physical objects uh, is is often a whole world of discovery uh, uh, awaiting you. But that it's possible <laughs> to uh, be so lost in the intangible uh, t- to not ever get that far. Unfortunately for you, you did manage uh, to follow that advice. I did. Yeah. Well, I lo- I love old gadgets and old devices and. Uh, and, you know, another thing that I learned over the course of, of the year is that often those devices themselves hold a lot of clues. They can tell you a lot, the way they're made, the types of, of uh, choices that were made about their, uh, um, uh, you know, just the way they're put together can often help you to realize which came first or, or, or um, what they were thinking about or what little part they might have cribbed from somebody else. And uh, the, the devices... You know, also just being a journalist, they're so tangible. You know, uh, the experience of handling some of these particular, uh, very, very, very early, some of the very earliest telephones, um, it really, you, you feel like you're touching history, and it really brought, brought, the, uh, brought the story to life for me. So I, I did. I go all the way to, to London, where they have one of the, the world's greatest telecommunications uh, collections, and I go into their warehouse there with a fantastic guide, um, very knowledgeable guy, um, who uh, who walks me through some of their holdings, and it was really a great experience and uh, another way in which you can really you know get a kind of a handle on on uh, both the period and the particular story that I was chasing, and there's some clues in there as uh, as comes out in the book. Hmm. You also speaking of the tangible are having the very interesting experience of exploring this essentially right in the backyard of of where all of this took place it, it, in terms of Alexander Graham Bell. I mean, it, it occurred right there in Boston. And you write at one point, the, the geographic proximity of the whole story made it seem maddeningly within reach, like a treasure buried somewhere beneath my feet. And yet, as you went looking for some of the places where this these dramatic events played out with Mr. Bell, that in fact uh, most of those aren't aren't here anymore. Well, it's true. It's true. Uh, both of those things are true. You know, one of the things that was very exciting for me is that I'd be reading some letter or whatever, and Bell would be talking about something, and I knew exactly where it was because I grew up in Boston, and I um, I felt there was a, a real tangible connection. I uh, when he goes, he he uh, part of the when his financial backer lives uh, right on uh, one of the fanciest streets in Cambridge, Mass, along the Charles River, Brattle Street. The house is no longer there, but you still have a sense of uh, of where these things took took place, and uh, um, so that was a very fun aspect for me. Uh, even though you know the city of Boston, the face of it has dramatically changed, and there's not too much that's really still in any way. Uh, uh, reminiscent of uh, the way it was in Bell's time, uh, that still was a, a very fun sort of piece of the story for me. In fact, as I say in the book, 
when Bell and Watson first do the beginnings of long-distance communication, Bell would be uh, in Boston at the headquarters of a, of a retail outfit, and Watson was in the warehouse, and the warehouse was literally located in the parking lot of the building where I was doing a lot of this research. So there was the sense that it was all taking place right right where I was. <laughs> Except that warehouse is no longer there. Right, hmm. right. And it's interesting, when we, when we take ourselves back to supposedly that dramatic moment of March 10th, 1876, when <laughs> the way we think of it is that this new device called the telephone kind of miraculously springs to life. Um, we're talking about a telephone call that traveled, uh, you estimate, about 10 yards. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a short distance, you know, it's, it's like the moon landing, right? Uh, uh, one small step. It was a short <laughs> distance, but, uh, but a very important first communication. And of course, um, despite the mystery at the heart of this, uh, this certainly was at least one of the of the very first times where more people communicated uh, uh, on it on a telephone um, so it must have been a very exciting moment I want you to to explain to our listeners because I think among the many surprises I mean the heart and soul of your book of course we should probably remind our listeners about this is the the the, the tangled mystery of Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray and the the very real possibility that that Mr. Bell, in fact, maybe stole information from Mr. Gray or appropriated it for himself or is managed to take credit for something he didn't really deserve credit for. That's the heart of the story. But along the way, you end up uh, telling us about all kinds of, of other experiments done by all kinds of other people uh, long before March 10th, 1876, to, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, achieve this. Uh, just talk for a moment about some of those early pioneers in this effort uh, that predate Alexander Graham Bell. Right. Well, you know, we talked a little bit about the way people were looking for a, what they called a multiplex or a multiple uh, messaging telegraph. Um, and so uh, there were lots of minds on this problem. Uh, just the way today there are lots of people trying to speed up communication on the Internet or whatever they might be doing. Um, and, uh, you know, my goal in the book is certainly not to replace sort of one myth of a lone inventor with, uh, with another. Uh, and I think that uh, I'm of the belief that, that technology often comes from multiple kinds of sources. And in this case, there were certainly lots and lots of, of important developments along the way. And one that I that I traced, there, there are many that I had to leave out because, uh, because I wanted to kind of keep the focus on this central mystery. But, but one that I do go into in some detail is uh, a guy named Philip Rees, who was um, uh, a German, who 10 years prior to any of this story had uh, made a, a telephone that I, I got the uh, privilege of taking a, a personal look at, uh, that by all accounts, seem to have, have worked. There are a lot of contemporary accounts at the time that showed that, uh, that people were able to communicate music and some speech on this thing, and this is 10 years earlier. And so one of the questions is, to what extent did Bell know about this and draw upon that? Uh, but even prior to that, there was a whole, uh, a whole cascade of important developments related to the telegraph and our understanding of how sound could possibly travel on a telegraph wire that... Uh, 
that was very important. And, uh, and another thing that I put in uh, the book that I think is tremendously important is the very first mention of the idea of a telephone that anybody can find actually happened in a French magazine uh, by a guy who, who spelled out the whole idea that maybe uh, at some point we'll be, be talking uh, in, in, uh, in one city and someone in another city will be able to, to listen. And he didn't just wasn't just one of these sort of science fiction things. He actually spelled out a kind of conceptual way of how he thought it would work. Um, I think these kinds of things turn out to be very important because who knows who read that and, uh, and how it got their mind working. And so our envisioning of what we might be able to do is also a big part of the story. Right. Well, and I, I, I not only appreciate that you give us some of the words of this uh, Charles Broussel who, who wrote this in, in 1854, but then you mention at the time of its publication, Alexander Graham Bell was seven years old. Right. So that really tells us something about uh, to what extent s- at least some exploration of, of this uh, possibility ha- had occurred. Right. Um, so let's take ourselves back now to the, the, the central story and, and Alexander Graham Bell. As you began this work and this concerted study, uh, I assume you had at least some notion that there were these other figures, and and in fact, there was also this person named Elisha Gray. I mean, some of the rest of us picking up a book like this, it's probably news to us that there was anybody else besides Alexander Graham Bell that that figured in this story. Well, you know, when I first started out, uh, I didn't know too much about uh, all the ins and outs of these these kinds of things myself. Uh, um, uh, I I you know like so many people, I think I'd heard the story that, the, the story that's usually told is there was this guy, Elisha Gray, he's kind of a footnote of history, um, who got there hours later than Alexander Graham Bell. At the patent the, office. At the patent office. Uh, and because of that, he didn't get the patent, and Alexander Graham Bell did, and uh, too bad for him. <laughs> you know, and this is kind of, if he's ever in any of the history books, this is essentially the, the cameo role that he plays. Um, I didn't know anything about him, and not too many people do, and one of the pleasures of the book was to be able to see what an in- incredibly brilliant inventor he was and, uh, and what a contribution, I believe, he made. Um, so, uh, uh, so, you know, when I discovered this sketch that seemed so similar to, to Elisha Gray's in Bell's own notebook, uh, it just opened up this whole set of questions for me, and, the, the, um, uh, and I just, you know, I... I tried to relatively methodically start looking into it as best I could, and uh, every time I'd turn over one, one stone or think I'd gotten to the bottom of something, it would be fishy in a new way, or there'd be some other part to it that, that would raise my eyebrows. Uh, the timing of the filings in the patent office, what actually was filed, uh, you know, what, when I looked at the patents themselves, it was ex- extremely eye-opening because Elisha Gray's uh, filing at the patent office described a machine for people to talk to one another over the telegraph wire. Bell's famous patent, now what we think of as the telephone patent, still considered the most lucrative patent ever issued in the United States, it's nothing of the kind. It hardly even makes a mention of, uh, of talking over, over the telephone. So there were just a whole host of, of questions the deeper I looked. Mm. And yes, and some of what is 
wrong <laughs> or awry, you use that word a couple of times, with with Bell's patent application or, or the way in which it was handled or the way in which the decision was ultimately rendered just don't quite line up. Uh, maybe explain briefly to our listeners uh, what that process entailed, uh, back then at least. Yeah, well, sure, that's a, that's a, um, a great thing to talk about because um, it's a little different back then. Uh, and one of the most notable things is that at that time, uh, you still had to submit a working model of your invention uh, at the patent office. Today, of course, that would be virtually unthinkable because people are patenting such highly conceptual things like a new gene or something like that. But in those days, it was mostly mechanical devices, and you had to submit a working model. And uh, um, now, uh, one of the very interesting things that, uh, that jumped out at me right from the start is that... Um, on March 10th, that famous day when Bell's calling to Watson and having that first success for the telephone, he already has his patent in hand, which means that he had never actually submitted a working model of a telephone to the patent office, and that raised my eyebrows, too. How in the world did they let him get away with that? And that's a piece of the mystery. Meanwhile, Elisha Gray uh, had done something that they called a a caveat at that time. You were allowed to... uh, to file a caveat, uh, which they've since discontinued, discontinued it about 1910. And what that did is it allowed you to stake out your, your turf, uh, and it gave you a grace period in which you could uh, uh, have, have a period of time before you actually had to submit the model. And during that time, the caveat would have all the same power as a patent. So Gray still hadn't submitted his working model, but he had a... a diagram and a drawing of exactly what it was going to be, and it was presumably just a um, matter of time before he got it in. Uh, Meanwhile, you have have Alexander Graham Bell getting the patent on something that he had never made. This is another another thing, and this is the kind of thing that I'd keep finding the the further in I'd go. Uh, There were more things that raised more suspicions about how how the whole thing came about. Uh, We should mention that uh, I mean, there's, there, there was far more than, than those specific materials, the patent applications uh, for you to look at, including uh, all the testimony when this began to be uh, sort of legally contended and so on. Um, but, but let's talk a moment more about the, these patent uh, documents. Not only was there this incriminating sketch on Bell's, which so closely paralleled what appeared on Elisha Gray's document, I mean, a document which Bell never should have seen. I mean, it should have been held in strictest confidence, and yet here it is also in Bell's document. But also, there is the fascinating matter of something that appears to have been added later to Bell's document, which is also a a very suspicious thing. Talk for a moment about that. Right, and well, you know, uh, one of the, as I said, the sort of cascade of fishy circumstances is that when I, I looked at Bell's handwritten file copy of the patent application that he made, this key part, which uh, in, goes directly to the transmitter design, which was the big stumbling block uh, of the telephone, the part that I, I'm quite convinced that he stole from Elisa Gray, it's written in, a, in the margin. And that, that piece of paper is also uh, 
you know there for people to look at in the in the book themselves um and you can go and get it online if you want to scrutinize it more closely but uh but a tremendously fishy thing because um lacking that marginalia in bell's actual handwritten patent application his patent wouldn't really be be worth much of anything um so how that got there when it got written in this was yet another piece of the puzzle that I had to try and uh, get to the bottom of. Absolutely. Uh, and the fact is that this is such crucial information central to the patent application's worth. And the idea that uh, Bell would forget that and then think, oops, I've forgotten this right. central matter on which everything rests I mean, that, that is really rather a preposterous uh, possibility. Right. Fishy in the extreme. And, and yet the stakes were so high, uh, most lucrative patent ever issued, and, of course, leading to one of the, the largest monopolies that the world has ever known, the Bell Telephone Company, which became AT&T. So the, the consequence of, of what transpired in this moment really made a huge difference in uh, ultimately the way history played, played itself out. Let's just talk about a couple other resources uh, to which you were able to avail yourself, which uh, helped fill in some of the gaps as well. One of them being uh, the notebook of Alexander Graham Bell. And for that matter, I assume there's such a thing with Elisha Gray. I I don't remember that now off the top of my head, but certainly you looked at Alexander Graham Bell's notebook, and uh, there are all kinds of interesting things there. Remind us where one even sees that? Well, the great, great thing about uh, about Bell is that he wrote everything down in gorgeous handwriting. Uh, he just, uh, and he saved everything, so uh, or most everything. Uh, so uh, now at the Library of Congress, there's a collection that includes 147,000 documents, all the originals that you can pull up on the screen, you can read the letter that he wrote, uh, you know, on a particular day uh, in the 1800s. It's a fabulous resource once you get into sleuthing around in this stuff. And I was, uh, you know, gr- I just greatly benefited from that. Um, now, Elisha Gray's papers, of course, don't have that advantage. Uh, you can't search for them on a computer in the same way. You have to go uh, into, and they're not even gathered together in one archive, so you have to do a lot of work to even locate where where they might be. Um, he was not nearly as uh, as prolific a note-taker uh, or letter-writer for that, that matter. as a rather shy man. Um, but I was able to uncover a lot of important documents from his life. Um, and one thing that greatly helped me is I was able to uncover an unpublished manuscript that was being written by the, then the head of the physics department at Oberlin College back in the 1930s who died in the middle of it. But he just living that uh, much further back in time, had actually made contact with some descendants who still remembered uh, uh, Elisha Gray, and he gathered together at least some of the papers. So that's why they reside in Oberlin College, where I went to uh, to go look at a lot of them. And it was very eye-opening, to say the least. Hmm. And uh, another thing that you were able to, to look at, which I think is especially intriguing, is a whole host of of books which have been written over the years. And I find this to be especially interesting, that you wanted to sort of 
trace back where the story that we think of now, where that came from. And one of your most intriguing discoveries is that this uh, dramatic story of Alexander Graham Bell kind of suffering this minor accident and Mr. Watson, come here, I want you. Uh, the, the, the apparent origin of that story is actually quite surprising. I mean, in terms of the many years that, that ensued before anyone ever seems to have even told right. that story. Right. Right. People will have to, you know, sort of read the book to, to understand ex- exactly what you're getting at here. But the, suffice it to say for, uh, um, uh, for right now that, the, that a key piece, I think, of the, of the puzzle that I was trying to put together occurred. It was another example of a kind of a Whiggism. You know, we've heard that story so much that, of course, you just imagine that that was a contemporaneous story, that, that people knew that story at the time, that Bell would tell the story of that first phone call to Watson. In fact, he never did. He didn't do it on the witness stand. He never publicly told that story. And so the question is, why didn't they know that story? The story didn't come out until four years after Bell's death when it was written into Watson's autobiography. And that revelation turns out to be very important in our understanding of, of, uh, of how this thing played itself out, and particularly this, this burning question of why Elisha Gray didn't scream bloody murder about having his invention stolen. Hmm. Uh, the, the way in which Bell uh, um, presented the telephone to the world and kept certain aspects of its invention secret uh, turns out to be a very important part of this mystery. Right. Very, very carefully uh, conceived on his <laughs> right. part. I, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't also say that there's a love story at the heart of this whole thing, too. And I think that's another thing that I greatly enjoyed uh, learning about. Uh, right when Bell's doing this uh, this research, he falls madly in love with the, the daughter of his financial backer. And this is another thing that turns out to be important in the story as well. Well, and she's a deaf woman, correct? She is. She was one of his students. Uh, and uh, and you, you mentioned towards the end of the book that, that, that Bell said repeatedly that he really hoped in the end that history would remember him more for the way he worked with the deaf than inventing right. the telephone. And, of course, the, uh, maybe the largely unspoken implication there is that perhaps at the heart of Bell's looking at his own life and legacy was uh, perhaps some of the guilt he felt on, on how he had constructed this credit for the telephone, which he did not fully deserve. Right, right. You know, that's such a... You know, I'm glad you brought that up because... Um, that's in so many of the history books. It's in the kids' books or whatever. And it's usually written, you know, oh, well, Bell was such a great humanitarian that he'd prefer to be remembered as a teacher of the deaf. And he was a great teacher of the deaf. Um, he'd prefer to be remembered that way than as the inventor of the telephone. But one of the amazing things, you know, I said before, that it was kind of like falling through a historical trap door. Um, and, uh, and one of the things is it just gave you a different lens to look at so many of the things that happened to, to Bell, and I think that's a great example. It gives us a different way to understand how he wanted to be remembered, because I, I, uh, I do think that there's a, a lot of guilt and remorse that you can see in many of the things that he, he did later in his life. Hmm. I think it's also interesting uh, for our <laughs> listeners specifically to know that some of these events played out right here in the Midwest, uh, that Elisha Gray did a lot of his work uh, in the Chicago area. Right. And you tell us about an extraordinary event which occurred uh, in the 1870s, a huge banquet 
which was thrown uh, in Elisha Gray's honor in Highland Park, Illinois, not far at all from where I am talking to you. And, uh, and this is a, a, a huge banquet thrown to honor him as the inventor of the telephone. And, and one has a sense that, you know, in the minds of at least a few people at that point in time, Elisha Gray was the rightful inventor of the telephone. But, of course, that's not ultimately the way history has come to remember him. You know, uh, one of the great things about being at this particular institute, the Dibner Institute at MIT, is that they have arguably one of the the, uh, the best uh, collections of documents of the history of tech, science and technology uh, almost anywhere in the world. And uh, and one of the things in their collection that I was so excited to find is the the actual pamphlet from that that banquet that told you what was on the menu and had ads just like we have today you know from uh, local sponsors of the event and uh, yeah i mean it wasn't just a few there were many many people including some of the top people in the telegraph business who considered elisha gray to be the inventor of the telephone in those early days because they they knew about what he had accomplished and uh, so it's an amazing part of the story to see to try and trace not just what happened but also um, how it came to be remembered the way it did hmm. And, of course, it is so interesting to think of of Bell and Gray not even setting out to, to do what they ultimately did. You tell us of Mr. Gray looking as the telephone as little more than a scientific toy. And, of course, it has come to be so much more than that. And your book is so much about the formation of what you call at one point the seemingly invincible myth that Bell single-handedly invented the telephone. It will be interesting to see... Uh, the state of that myth uh, once people have read your book. The book, again, is called The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret, published by W.W. Norton and Company, and the author, Seth Shulman. Seth Shulman, I can't thank you enough for writing such a fascinating book and for being so generous with your time today and talking about it. Very best wishes to you. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure.